0: Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we're going to discuss some pearls from a talk that I gave at our conference on diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, we did a podcast on a critically ill DKA patient back on podcast 13, so you can go back and check that out as well. The talk I gave today focused on aggressive resuscitation while also discussing a couple of common dogmatic teachings in DKA diagnosis and management. We started off by briefly discussing the diagnosis. Diagnosis of DKA rests on three laboratory findings, glucose greater than 250, pH less than 7.3, and the presence of ketones in the urine or blood. However, we're gonna be pressed to make this diagnosis before the lab tests come back in order to start treating the patient. What I'm looking for for the diagnosis in severely ill DKA is a glucose over 250 on the finger stick, so a nice easy bedside test, and altered mental status. Along with that, you can see Kussmaul respirations, these deep, irregular breathing pattern. I'll drop a video to Kussmaul respirations in the show notes so you can see exactly what that looks like. Now, point of care blood gas analysis is going to help you to rapidly make this diagnosis as well as bringing us to the first dogmatic teaching, and that's that an arterial blood gas is necessary to diagnose DKA. Now, there are numerous articles examining this topic, and what they tell us is that a venous blood gas sample is just as good as an ABG for making the diagnosis. The difference between those parameters that you see on VBG and ABG as far as pH, bicarbonate, CO2, there's really a minimal difference between what you see in the VBG and ABG, and it's not going to change your management. So there's no need to stick your patient in the radial artery when you can just draw a venous sample off the IV that you're putting in. Now, once you get that IV in, the first-line therapy is going to be IV fluids. In patients with type 1 diabetes, there's an absolute absence of insulin. That absence of insulin leads to glucose accumulating in the serum, spilling into the urine, and creating an osmotic diuresis. These patients can often be quite dry depending on the duration of illness. Now, there's some recent pediatric literature that found that severe volume depletion isn't the norm, at least in that patient group. In this set of patients, they often are just a couple of liters behind and not the four, five, or six liters that we often treat them with. Now, the patient's hypotensive, I'm going to give them a 30 cc per kilo bolus over about 30 to 45 minutes. If they're normotensive but look dry, then I'm going to give them the same amount of fluid but probably over an hour or two so as not to give it too rapidly. Now, what type of fluid should we be using? This is a very contentious area with little clarity from the literature. What we know is that normal saline is, well, far from normal. It's got a higher concentration of both sodium and chloride than our serum, and administration of large volumes of it can lead to a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. While we don't have definitive evidence that this leads to bad outcomes for patients, well, physiologically, it doesn't make a ton of sense to give a patient who already has an acidemia a solution that's going to make them more acidemic. If you're giving a liter or two, probably doesn't make much of a difference. I typically will mix and match solutions, but lactated ringers is my go-to in DKA. It's more physiologic, and you don't get that large volume of chloride going in, creating that non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. All right, so we've got a VBG giving us the diagnosis, and we've started our fluid repletion. What's next? Well, of course, it's going to be insulin, right? So this was the second dogma that we tackled today. After IV fluids, insulin therapy is not the most important intervention. Going back to that pathophysiology and that osmotic diuresis, along with the glucose that gets spilled into the urine, you're also going to lose electrolytes, and the most important of these is potassium. Potassium. About 10% of patients will present frankly hypokalemic on serum testing, but almost all of them are going to be total body depleted of potassium. Their serum levels are going to be falsely reassuring because of the acidosis shifting potassium out of cells. Basically, even the ones who come in with normal potassiums are severely depleted. In addition, all of the therapies that you give the patient is going to drop their serum potassium and hypokalemia kills patients with DKA. So we need to aggressively replete potassium. If the patient's potassium is less than 3.3, I typically will hold the insulin while repleting potassium up to a level of at least three and a half. If the level is greater than three and a half, I'm going to start insulin and potassium repletion concurrently. And don't forget, if you're repleting potassium, you also have to give magnesium. Now, at this point, you've given fluids, you've started to replete your potassium, and you look back at your VBG, and you notice that the pH was 7.05 with a bicarb less than 5. Now, looking at those numbers, a lot of us are going to want to administer sodium bicarbonate to try to fix the serum bicarb as well as the pH. A number of guidelines recommend giving bicarbonate for a pH under 7.1, but again, there's little evidence to say that we should be doing this. The literature that does exist shows that you may see a transient rise in the pH, but it's going to be short-lived. In order for bicarbonate administration to increase the pH, you have to increase the respiratory rate and blow off CO2. In DKA, the patients already have a high ventilatory rate, so unless you're going to intubate and hyperventilate, you're unlikely to see much of any effect. Additionally, bicarb can harm patients. It can drive down your potassium, and it can cause a paradoxical CNS acidosis. None of this is to say you can't give bicarbonate, but you should know there's little reason to believe that it's going to do anything. Finally, we've got to discuss insulin. In a type 1 diabetic, we're going to have to start insulin at some point. The goal isn't for that insulin to drop their blood sugar, but rather to turn off the lipolysis and protein breakdown, which generates ketones. This process creates the acidosis as well. Insulin is going to close the anion gap. Traditionally, we're taught to give a bolus of insulin of about 0.1 units per kilo, followed by an infusion of 0.1 units per kilo per hour. However, there's little basis for the bolus, and it can be harmful. Giving a bolus and a drip at this rate leads to a short period of supraphysiologic circulating levels, and then the insulin level bottoms out. Instead, if you give an infusion at 0.14 units per kilo, you get a nice plateau right in the physiologic insulin range. The bolus of insulin also has a big downside. It can cause worsening hypokalemia, and it can cause hypoglycemic events. In kids, the guidelines don't recommend bolus insulin prior to infusion, and this should apply to adults as well. While all that's going on, it's critical to make sure that you consider what caused the patient to go into DKA in the first place. Any stress to the system can set this off, but the most common are things like infection, MI, trauma, and noncompliance with medications. An EKG should be obtained in all these patients, and it may tip you to the presence of ischemia or a dysrhythmia. And I've got a very low threshold to treat these patients with broad-spectrum antibiotics since infection is so common. Finally, we briefly discussed one of the dreaded consequences of DKA, and that's cerebral edema. This is basically swelling of the brain, and it carries a 40 to 60% mortality rate. It's pretty rare, and it tends to occur during the patient's first episode of DKA, so you particularly have to watch for this in kids and teenagers. The disease is rare, so we don't have a ton of information about what causes it. In the past, it was thought that giving too much fluids during resuscitation may have led to cerebral edema, but that's mostly been debunked by recent literature. The key really is recognition. If the patient has a focal neurofinding, seizures, or significant alteration of mental status, suspects cerebral edema. What is frequently described is a patient who's initially improving with treatment, but then decompensates or develops a new neurocomplaint or finding. This can be as subtle as a new headache. If you suspect cerebral edema, you need to rapidly initiate treatment. In the normotensive uvolemic patient, I would give mannitol 1 to 1.5 grams per kilogram IV. In the hypovolemic or hypotensive patient, I would use 3% hypertonic saline about 250 cc's over 10 to 15 minutes. Intubation and hyperventilation can help here as well. All right, let's hit some of the big take-home points. Number one, DKA should be suspected in any patient with altered mental status and hyperglycemia. Get a VBG because an ABG isn't necessary to help to confirm the diagnosis. Number two, hypokalemia kills in DKA. Aggressively replete potassium and consider holding insulin, which drops your serum potassium, until the potassium level in the serum is greater than three and a half. Number three, the insulin bolus isn't necessary and appears to cause more episodes of hypoglycemia as well as hypokalemia. Just start insulin as an infusion at 0.14 units per kilo. Number four, be vigilant about cerebral edema. Any change or deterioration in mental status should prompt treatment and evaluation. Manitol in the euvolemic normotensive patient and 3% hypertonic saline in the hypotensive or hypovolemic patient can be life-saving. And finally, don't forget to always hunt down the underlying cause of the DKA. Infection and noncompliance are the most common, so liberally administer broad-spectrum antibiotics, even if you've got just a hint of an infection brewing. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net, where we've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and like us if you like the site. Follow us on Google Plus and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.